You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation 21. If you don't have a Bible, the ones in the seat in front of you also contain Revelation 21 on page 1041. I'm going to read our passage. You can see what we're studying in your bulletin, and then we will study it together. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 9, the Apostle John says, Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God its radiance was like a most rare jewel like a jasper like a clear as a crystal it had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east gate three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length, the same as its width, And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Come, Lord Jesus. I want you to do an exercise with me, and just I would ask you to trust me. Would you close your eyes? I want you to picture your happy place. You know, as you're picturing that, maybe some of you are thinking of mountains or maybe skiing or maybe a beach. Others of you, and I I know you, are wanting to ask questions of me. How long will I be there? What is the budget for said trip? Am I going to be paying or are you going to be paying? But the point in this exercise, now you can look up here, is that I can all but guarantee you that every one of you pictured something different. That's because when we think of our happy place, we bring to that exercise our own experiences, our own personalities, our own likes and dislikes. And each one of those places that we pictured or those experiences that we imagined are something we would look forward to. If we knew that this summer there would be a guaranteed date when you would experience that, We would all be motivated today by that date. We would all be motivated by the fact that on a certain date on that calendar, you would experience what you love. And I think the exercise of John writing these details and our opportunity to study, understand, and apply that is to level the playing field. To make sure that when we close our eyes next, that our ultimate happy place is the place that John describes. And I want to invite you to lay aside your traditions, lay aside your experience, lay aside your personality, and even what you've been taught, to be able to study the Word as much as we can to understand the Word in its context. The Word as it is being communicated to us. And I think if you will follow me with this exercise, we will conclude, just as Vern Poitras says on the quote that is on the screen, that the description of the New Jerusalem serves the same purpose that the rest of Revelation does, and that is this. Revelation is designed not only to assure us of God's final purposes, but also to increase our longing for Him and the realization of His purposes. Friends, that's the point of the description of the New Jerusalem. And the big idea is in your notes, and that is the details of the New Jerusalem provide understanding that should motivate us both to conquer for the glory of Christ today and long for the culmination in the future. Before we dive in, would you flip back to Revelation 20? I want you to look specifically, actually, chapter 21, and specifically at verse 5. The voice who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. And then in verse 6 says, It is done. That will help us 
be able to understand and know what to do with the description of the New Jerusalem. In those two verses, we see this concept communicated to us. Not yet, meaning it is in process, but already, meaning it is done. So so as we begin to unpack the details of the New Jerusalem, we need to live in this tension, and that is, already the New Jerusalem is complete, but not yet. That is the perspective that we must have as we study these details. God is speaking as though the New Jerusalem is done or complete already. But the fact is, as we study Scripture and understand prophecy, it is complete, not yet. So with that framework and with those lenses, let's study this text together. And see, first of all, that the people of God are complete. The people of God are complete. As you look at verse 9, you should see, if you've been studying this series with us, that there is vocabulary that we've already seen. In fact, if you were to flip back to Revelation 17, verse 1, almost exactly the same words occur. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues. Now, what I want you to see in that is that John is communicating intentionally. And we'll see in a moment what he's doing, but John is using the same exact details, which if you were an original audience listening to Revelation, read in one sitting, being explained to you, this would likely draw your attention to the fact that you've just heard this. And in Revelation 17, what we heard is the introduction of the prostitute of Babylon. And we learned as we studied that, that what John was describing is the details of the world system, the people of the world pursuing the things of the world that are ruled by the ruler of the world. Now I say that very intentionally because I'm setting up what the bride, what the holy city, what Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem actually is, and I would encourage you to write this down, it is the kingdom of God. It is the kingdom of God. Now you may say, well, pastor, last week you said it's the people of God. Well, let me give you a definition of the kingdom of God from Graham Goldsworthy that I think will help you see it's one and the same. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. The kingdom of God is the people of God in God's place under God's rule. And when we see that all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when we see that in the Promised Land, when we see that in the church and what Jesus said in Mark 1, 14 and 15, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, then we, be able, we begin to be able to understand theologically what John is describing. And this is the contrast to the prostitute of Babylon, which is the world system, or listen to this, the kingdom of man. John is now describing the kingdom of God. He uses terms like verse 9, the bride that we have already seen. In verse 2 of chapter 21, we see in verse 9, the wife of the lamb that we saw back in chapter 20. 
We see also the description, verse 10, of the holy city, Jerusalem. We see verse 10 coming down from heaven. Friends, what I want you to see in this is that John is speaking symbolically. I'm going to once again just pause here because for those of you who might be new or for those of you who are still wrestling with this symbolic versus literal, I want to again relate to you so that I hope you can understand my point. If I would have heard a pastor explain this to me years ago, I would have been tempted to write him off. Because we cannot just go to God's word and say everything is symbolic, everything is spiritual, everything is allegorical. Some things are literal, some things are symbolic. But look at the text, verse 10, coming down from heaven with walls and buildings that are bright. Verse 11, clear as crystal. Verse 12, walls with names of the tribes of Israel at each gate. Verse 12, 12 angels guarding the gates. Verse 14, Walls with 12 foundations. Verse 14, walls or foundations with 12 names of apostles. What are we to do with this? And I hope as I read that in my introduction, you were asking the same questions. Are we to understand these descriptions as a literal city with literal walls that are gold hue but crystal? We can see through them. What do we do with a city that's described as, in our English understanding, 1,500 miles wide, deep, and high? What do we do with that? And I submit to you that, once again, we understand this to be symbolic. And I know there will be the temptation for you to see this, that I'm saying, as a slippery slope that is over-spiritualizing the text. A slippery slope that allows us to pick and choose what we would like to understand as symbolic and pick and choose what we would like to see as literal. But I want to remind you of how Jesus taught Scripture and the rest of the authors of Scripture taught Scripture by putting four guardrails up on the screen. I'm hoping that over time, Repetition will be the key to learning, and that learning will be achieved by repetition. But as we study how Jesus taught his disciples, how Jesus taught the crowds, how the apostles taught the gospels, how the epistles are written, how the Old Testament interacts with other Old Testament passages, I believe with great confidence these four guardrails are modeled to us so that we can read any text of Scripture, including the book of Numbers that I was reading this morning, and be able to know what is symbolic and what is literal. The four guardrails are these. First of all, history. The historical context. When I read the book of Numbers, I must remember who is the original author, who is the original audience. The original author was Moses. The original audience was Israel as they were leaving Egypt into the wilderness, heading to the land of promise. This is the historical context. And so, as I'm studying the text, I'm not presuming that they would have understood what da- who David was. The, the role that Jerusalem would play in Israel. Who the kings would be. Who the church would be. Who even Jesus in great detail would be. And that historical context allows me to be able to begin to understand the text that I am reading. The second one is the grammar. 
And it's not just the words. It's not just the parts of speech. It's also the literary devices. In this case, this is apocalyptic prophecy. Apocalyptic, revealing from the perspective of God the details of human history. Prophecy, the divine direct revelation of God to human beings with his authority. This is the literary device. And so that puts us in the mindset of being able to understand the text. Now, at this point, some of you might be tempted to think, I can never do this. But listen, if this baseball player was able to do it, you can. If this guy who was never exceptional in any activity I ever put my hand to can do it, you can do it. All that's happened is God's grace and tremendous mentors and me leaning into the process. If you are willing to do that, you can do it too. And God wants us to do that because that's what he modeled as he taught his disciples, as the authors of scriptures wrote what the Holy Spirit inspired them. You and I are intended and expected to do this. So the history, the grammar, but then the biblical theology. Understanding that the Bible is a story. I was talking to some men yesterday about Gandalf from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And if your conclusions about Gandalf are only derived from the first of the three books, you will not have the whole picture. You will not have the authority in your statements of the entire story. The same is true with Scripture. We do not read Scripture in isolation. We read it in light of the context of the whole story. That's the beauty of studying Genesis to Revelation. That's the beauty of when you read a Bible plan, when you read from Genesis to Revelation. The fourth guardrail is the progress of Revelation. So when we read... In Hebrews about Melchizedek, we read Psalm 110 in light of Hebrews. We read Genesis 14 in light of Hebrews and Psalm 110 when we're introduced to the historical figure of Melchizedek in Genesis 14. Friends, these four guardrails will allow us to be able to read a text like Revelation 21 with the tools that we need to be able to discern what is symbolic and what is literal. I submit to you this is symbolic. Let me give you five C's as my reasons. First of all, the contrast. The contrast. John's introduction to this passage is a contrast to Revelation 17. It's a contrast to the world system. This is God's system. It is the people of God, which is number two, the city. The city is the people of God in the place of God or God's place, not in like exchange of God, but in where God has placed them under his rule. So the city is the kingdom of God, and what makes the kingdom of God is the people in the presence of God under his rule. They're described here as the bride. Number three, the carbon copy. In these descriptions, beloved, listen to this. The city reflects the glory of God, doesn't it? You can go back to Revelation 4.3 and see just the beginning of the description that the throne of God is Jasper. 
Look at how God is described in the throne room in Revelation 4 and 5 as different scenes are given to God and God is described as Jesus is described. His people will reflect him. And so the city is described as in agreement with the glory of God as he's described elsewhere. You can write down Isaiah 54 and you can look at this later. God is described with similar descriptions of jewels, of radiance. Number four, completion. That's what the twelves represent. And yes, it says twelve sons of Israel. Yes, it says twelve apostles. But listen to this. What he's doing by using that imagery and those numbers is showing the people of God are complete. The people of God in the Old Testament looking forward to Christ. The people of God in the New Covenant looking at Christ, the apostles, and then looking back at his atoning death and his victorious resurrection, 12 and 12. This is the complete people of God. That's the symbolism in the city description. And then number five, the church. Paul will help us as we go outside of this text to understand the imagery that the church is the temple of the living God because his presence dwells in them. The people of God in God's place under God's rule. What I love about this is that God is making all things new and we can also say it is done. Amen? Galatians 3.28, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free, no limitation. So friends, before we move on to the next completion, the people of God are complete as this city describes. My exhortation to you is be one of them. Be one of them. Do not leave this place without knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are numbered in the people of God. You do that by agreeing with what God's word says about him and you and the solution. By trusting in Christ as that solution. By placing your faith and dependence upon him. By asking him to forgive your sins and by committing your life to being a citizen of King Jesus. Are you the people of God? Be one. Because the people of God are complete. Number two, the filling is complete. i got to explain what I mean by filling. You can turn there or you can write this down. Genesis chapter 1. The first positive command to the humans that he had created was this. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, listen to this, and fill the earth. The original command to our parents was to fill the earth. But, 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 but what? Listen, beloved, it's not just to fill them with other humans. It's not just to procreate and enjoy the process. You fill the earth, listen to this, beloved, with worshipers. That's what the rest of that text says. That's what the rest of chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis say. Exercise dominion over the earth. What is dominion? It's taking the rule of God and exercising that over creation. It's Genesis 2.15. Act like priests over creation. Keep anything unclean out of it. Make sure that the kingdom is clean. It's, it's making sure that you teach the word of God to other human beings. It is being prophets and priests and kings and fill the earth with them. Genesis 9.1 
humanity was given a second chance, weren't we? As the family of Noah came out of the ark, God said to Noah, be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill the earth with humans, no, with worshipers. It's interesting, what did Jesus say to the disciples on the mountain in Matthew 28? Make disciples of all nations. Fill the earth with worshipers. It's interesting when you look at this text and you see it in light of that, you begin to understand what John is describing. Look at verse 15. The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold. Have we seen a vision described where there was a measuring tool, a measuring rod? Back in chapter 11. And remember there, John was told to measure the temple and the courtyard, and we saw in that that he was measuring the people of God. He was measuring the church. That's why then you see two witnesses that are described in the same way Zechariah describes the people of God. The two witnesses are the lampstands and the olive trees. So here, once again, I think what John is describing is similar details to show he's measuring the people of God, even though here it's described as a city. What is the description? We'll look at verse 16, 12,000 stadia. Most of your Bibles in English will have footnotes and it will explain what a stadia was and we can conclude that it was about 1,500 miles. Now, I just want to have you pause and imagine this. 1,500 miles is almost exactly the distance between here and Los Angeles. That begins to allow you to put it into a human perspective. So it's that long, but it's also that wide, and it's also, isn't it interesting, that high. I had a friend years ago who showed me what he drew on a napkin, and I said, well, that's a cube. And he says, no, 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 that's the New Jerusalem. Okay, well, let's continue. Verse 17 says, he also measured a wall. Do you see what it says in the text? 144 cubits. The cubit was about 18 inches so I think you're looking at about 200, a little over 200 feet. Now, think about the architecture and the engineering of this. If this is a literal city, now I, I want to be respectful here, but, but just allow me to say this. The architecture and engineering is absurd. You would not have a 1,500-mile high city that had a 200-foot high wall. When you begin to see this, you begin to see even in the original context, even in the original audience, even in the ancient context, people would have begun to see that the descriptions are intended to be symbolic. Now I know people have said, well, this is the thickness of the wall, but even that, it's absurd. So what is John communicating? Well, the text actually helps us. And the first well, an additional indication is that this describes a cubed space. Would you write down 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 21? There, if you follow the dimensions in 1 Kings 6, 21, you see that this is the dimensions of the Holy of Holies. And there was the presence of God. Verse 17. 
You see, the description is this is human measurement, and then it's also angelic measurement. Now, there's a lot of opinions on what this means. I think John is once again alerting us to the fact that humans are not limited like, or angels are not limited like humans. What he's doing here is he's saying, I'm not talking about literal measurements. I'm talking in symbolism. He goes on to say, precious stones, but isn't it interesting, the 12 descriptions? Even as I read that, did you not want me to just skip ahead because you were worried that I wouldn't pronounce it correctly? And I'm confident that I didn't. Why those 12 jewels? Would you write down Exodus 28, 15 through 30? Exodus 28, 15 through 30. Some of these, most of these, are the 12 jewels of the breastplate of the high priest. But not all of them. Just like the 144,000 in chapter 7, the descriptions are not perfect. They're not necessarily complete. This is indicating symbolism. Verse 21, 12 gates are made out of 12 pearls, all being one pearl. Again, think in human terms. This is not possible. This was intended to communicate to the original audience and to us that this is symbolic. And then, once again, verse 16, 1,500 miles up, down, across. The quote will be up on the screen from Gregory Beale. This was the dimensions of the then-known Hellenistic world. Now, what is the point of all of this? It's filling. It's filling. How did Adam and Eve do when they attempted to fill the earth with worshipers? Well, chapter 4, Cain and Abel. How did Noah and his family do with filling the earth with worshipers? Well, chapter 11, Tower of Babel. How did Abraham and the Jews do with going to the land, which I believe was a, a, a beachhead or the beginning of how they were supposed to fill the earth with worshipers? Well, the kingdoms divided, didn't they? And in Matthew chapter 12, they rejected Messiah, putting him on the cross. You see, the beauty of this is that now we have Christ leading the charge, don't we? The church is not dependent on us. The church is not dependent on an earthly king. The church is dependent on Christ. So we're doing our part, but one day he will complete the filling. You see, the new Jerusalem is describing an Eden cosmos, the entire new earth, the entire universe. So when you see the description of the new Jerusalem, you can write out to the side, the entire future universe. It will be filled with worshipers. So the question to you is, or the invitation to you and me is, let's get to filling Let's do our part by making sure we're worshipers, and then let's share. Let's share. Share with neighbors. Share with coworkers. Share with friends. Share with family. Pray for them. Let's do our part in the already, knowing that someday it will be complete. Number three, the dwelling is complete. The dwelling is complete, and John moves away from measurements and architecture to more theological details, doesn't he? And he begins to unpack this theological theme that I think is one of the main themes of the entire story of the Bible, which is God dwelling with his people and his people dwelling with them. I just read that in Numbers this morning. 
This theme is a major theme. And if the original audience would have had familiarity with the Old Testament, which my position from the beginning is, they absolutely did, then when they would have thought of the dwelling of God, they would immediately thought of one place and one place only, and that is the temple. And so, if this is literal Jerusalem, you would expect to see a literal temple because that's what the original audience would have associated. Worship, presence of God, Jerusalem and Israel, temple, holy of holies. But isn't it interesting, the text says in verse 22, I saw no temple. All of a sudden, the original audience would have said, Screech! Here's a quote the team will put up on the screen. This is one of the most succinct summaries of the story of redemption. and serves as a guide for understanding Genesis, which we see the dwelling presence of God, Genesis 3.8. God was walking in the garden. His presence was there to Israel. His presence was in the tabernacle and the temple to the church. The Holy Spirit's dwelling presence is within us to the new Jerusalem with Christ as the fulfillment of it all. What's interesting is the completion and the completeness of the description. Look at verse 23. I I thought this was interesting, and I'm sure you did too. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is there. What's interesting about heaven is we don't have a whole lot of details, do we, in the Bible. There's a lot of conjecture, and a lot of us imagine that we'll be on clouds with harps and a halo over our heads, but we will have wings, so there's that. What has influenced all of our understanding of heaven is a lot of little details that have been extrapolated to our modern context and current understanding. Here's what I think the new Jerusalem will be like. The team will put this up on the screen. It will be echoes of this earth, but it will be perfect. And we don't have time to dig into all the details of what I think that will look like, but I think it'll be awesome And listen to this, it will transcend anything we can imagine. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 2. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can comprehend what God is preparing for those who love him. So when you look at the gospel of John, when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, you can just stop imagining Don't worry about the size of the room. Don't worry about the architecture. It will blow your mind, but it will be echoes of what we've experienced here. It says in verse 23, it doesn't say there's no sun, does it? Look at it. It doesn't say there's no moon. It says there's no need of it. Interesting, the Genesis 1, 14 through 19 tells us we need the sun and the moon. It will rule the day, it will rule the night, it will be the markers of seasons. We need, in this lifetime, sun and moon, but, but here we won't need it. There may be a sun and moon in heaven, we don't know. But we do know from the word of God that we won't need it. Verse 24, the nations and the kings will get their glory from God and not from themselves. Study history. Aren't the great generals and the great kings and the great nations glory getters? 
The reason why the Roman Empire was so great for so long is because of their emperors, because of their army, because of their economy, because of their rule. But, but in the New Jerusalem, everybody gets their glory from King Jesus and from God. Verse 23, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are there. And the impact is that nothing unclean will enter because God is present. You know, growing up, and I never knew if Oso would make a, an appearance in a church service, but here he is. You know, at night as a kid, it can be a little fearful. But as long as I had Oso, I was good. I lost Oso for a few months. And thankfully, a Denny's in New Mexico sent him to us. But you know, as I got older, there were other presences that helped me, my parents, even now my wife. I sleep a lot better at home than I do when I'm traveling. But the point in this is the imperfection of the presence of these resources in contrast with what we read here. Oh, friends, we are going to spend eternity in the presence of God in a way that we cannot even comprehend, in a way that makes all of these details and all of our imagination be secondary to the promise that God will dwell with us. And so that is the complete future that we have, and we get to experience it already. So here's the application. You and I must abide. We are privileged to abide in his presence. Amen? But so quickly we reach for the ESPN app in the morning, don't we? So easy we spend hours on YouTube. So easy we flip through stories and reels. Friends, the God of Scripture delights to dwell with us, and we already get to enjoy that experience. Let's abide with him. Number four, the resources are complete. And we've had Eden, Garden of Eden imagery sprinkled in, but now it's going to flow, and I did that on purpose. Look at verse 1. The angel showed me the river of the water of life. But even look at this description. It is in the middle of verse 2, the street of the city. If you think about the city Jerusalem today, or if you've ever been there, you will not see a river flowing in the middle of it. This is symbolic description. It's also drawing our attention back to Eden. Genesis 2 verse 10. There was a river flowing through and out of Egypt, giving life and sourcing everything. Verse 2 is another Eden description. It says the tree of life was there. This is not a literal tree, I do not believe. Says that it's yielding fruit in each month. I think this is alluding back to Psalm 1, verse 3. Remember? Blessed is the man who meditates on God's word day and night. He will be like a tree planted in rivers of water that will yield its fruit in its season. We will have everything that we will need. It will be perpetual. It's a complete supply. This is not describing a tree that will describe, that will produce 12 different fruits in 12 different months. It's telling us 12 complete. It's everything that we need. 
In fact, you can write down Ezekiel 47, verse 12. It'll be up on the screen. It says in Ezekiel 47, verse 12, describing the future temple, the future dwelling place of God, and on the banks on both sides of the river there will be grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves will be for healing. That's what John says here, isn't it? Fruit is for the healing of the nations. No longer is there conflict. No longer is there strife. No longer is there rivalry. No longer is there unclean. We will all be worshiping together. Verse 4, we will see his face. There will no more be night, not literal night, but the chaos of night that that represents. We will have the resources. You know, one of the things that has been the One of the biggest challenges in my marriage has been home improvement. We get in arguments. I am reminded what a failure I am with the most simple exercise of hanging pictures. And of course, early in our marriage, there were limitations, there were finances, there was a lack of technology, but thankfully those things have gotten better. And I want to introduce you to a marriage saver. This is, and I get no uh, residuals, although I hope someday I will, from Black & Decker, but this is the Black & Decker leveler that has a guide for the screws. This has been a tremendous resource in our marriage and in our home. But from time to time, I will forget about this resource, and I will attempt to hang a picture with my mind That's the only resource, and it is utter failure. I think what the descriptions of New Jerusalem are providing for us is the reminder that all of the resources we need for eternity will be ours, because God and the Lamb will be there, which leaves us with the final application, and that is, listen to this, beloved, and write it down and apply it. Use them. Use the resources. Our resources are the identity that is found in Christ, abiding in him, dwelling with him. These, we see by the description of the New Jerusalem, are complete, but not yet. Let's get to enjoying them today. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I pray this has been an encouragement for you. I pray that this will now replace whatever image you had when you imagined your happy place. It is intended to motivate us. It is intended to give us confidence. But friend, if you're not in the kingdom of God, then you don't have that confidence. If that's you, friend, give your life to Christ today. If you want to know more about the gospel, we'll have members of our prayer team at the end's of the stage they would love to be able to lead you toward a relationship with Christ. So you can join us as imperfect disciples following our perfect shepherd. Friend, if you are a member of the family of God, where's your happy place? What motivates you? I hope this morning it's been helpful for you to be reminded of the fact that in God's perspective, the people of God are complete. The filling is complete. 
Not only that, his dwelling is complete. And the resources are complete. We have that to look forward to. But access to them is ours today. If we have trusted in the completed work of Jesus Christ. If that's you, let's join together. Celebrate the taste of New Jerusalem now. It's a longing for the full reality in the future. Father, I thank you for this passage and the concepts that they have conveyed. I know that some of my conclusions might challenge some long-held understandings of those that are present, and I pray that we would all join together in being able to submit ourselves to your word and humbly seek to understand it as the original author, your Holy Spirit, and the Jesus and authors of Scripture have modeled. And to that end, may you grow us to look more like Christ as we understand him more, as we long for him more, and we live for him more. It's to his glory, I pray. And all God's people said, amen.